So today is April the 5th. Is that right? I'm right, okay. In four days, it's April the 9th. Does anybody know what happened 67 years ago on April the 9th? It's not that you're supposed to know. It's not a... At dawn on April the 9th, 67 years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was stripped naked, led into the execution yard of his prison, and hanged by a thin wire so that he would die by strangulation. Why? Why was Bonhoeffer, a deeply committed Christian, so brutally murdered just two weeks before the troops liberated Berlin. Why? The reason is that Bonhoeffer refused cheap grace. That was his term for it. Cheap grace. This phrase he came up with to talk about grace that is twofold. It is without discipleship and it is without the cross. Cheap grace. It's the kind of grace that forgets the costliness of Christ in the flesh bearing the burdens of our sinfulness. And Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace. He, he said that cheap grace does not take seriously either the gravity of sin or the radical call to servanthood. Now, a lot in the evangelical community are familiar with Bonhoeffer's life and familiar with this term cheap grace and are familiar with the idea that anytime you root out radical sin, you kind of devolve into a civic religion. But he defined cheap grace as this twin thing, forgetting the radical nature of sin and forgetting the radical call of Christ to servanthood. And that's what took Bonhoeffer to his execution. He wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. And because Bonhoeffer heard that call of Christ, he followed Christ all the way to his death. Now, over the next few days, Christ is calling our church. He's calling you. He's calling me to our graves. Because only the dead can be raised to life. He's calling us. Now there are many kinds of death a person can endure. And not all of them are physical. And it's our prayer that above all else, over the next few days, through our scripture readings, I hope you get a copy of the the scripture reading plan. It's out there on the table. Through the prayers and the silence, through our singing and our washing of feet and our eating a meal, through all of these things, it's it's my prayer for our church that you and I, that we will have a real encounter with the real Christ. That we will really engage these rituals at a deep heart level. Level so that deep in our hearts we can really encounter the risen Christ. And out of that encounter, that we can die to ourselves so that we can be transformed into his image. Now, this journey, it begins tonight. 
Thursday night. We're gathered here for a meal, much like Jesus gathered with his disciples for a meal on this night 2,000 years ago, his last night before his crucifixion. And then at the end of that meal, Jesus gives his disciples a commandment. Look with me at John chapter 13, a verse I didn't read, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now that's not the new bit, right? That goes all the way back into the Old Testament, right? To love your neighbor. It's the next part that's the new bit. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, until now, in John's gospel, in John's gospel, up until this point, Jesus has been the good shepherd. He's been exercising his astonishing authority by standing upright. He's been strong. He's been, in John's gospel, leading his followers like a captain on a battlefield. He's been leading them in the right direction. He's been correcting them with strength and authority. He's been performing his miracles. He's been standing his ground like a stalwart victor in the face of his accusers. He's been defending himself and ultimately with incredible strength in John's gospel, the apex up until this moment, he raised Lazarus from the dead. What an astonishing feat of power. But here in John 13, John, the incredible author, has a shift in the narrative. In these final few hours of Jesus' life, he reveals something. He reveals in a new way who God is. The beginning of John's gospel, the prologue, has Jesus descending, right? God becoming flesh, coming down. And this leads us into the heart of the Father. This is John chapter 1. But on this Thursday night, before his crucifixion, we see that Jesus has a final descent. And now, he is descending to his knees. He is descending even lower. Now he gets down even farther. The farthest he's gotten down in John's gospel to wash his disciples' feet. No longer are we looking at a strong, good shepherd. Now in John's gospel, we are looking down at God. That's astonishing. To look down at God? We are looking down at the God who kneels. At the God who is kneeling at our feet. That's why Peter reacted. No way. It's an astonishing thing to look down at the creator of the universe who is kneeling at your feet. Jesus, our servant. This is is difficult for my mind. In Jesus' culture, it was a slave's job to wash the feet. 
Look at verse 2 of John chapter 13. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, just in case you think Jesus didn't know what he was doing, he knew he had all power. He was cognizant of his incredible authority. That's remarkable. I mean, John wants you to know what is going through Jesus' mind in this moment. In this moment, he knows who he is. All authority. And that he had come from God and was going back to God. Rose from supper. Pregnant pause. Can you see him in your imagination? Stand up. That's what he should do, right? That's what the king does. He stands. Laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. It was a slave's job to wash the feet. An inferior would wash the feet of the superior. A disciple, the feet of the master. The, a lowly person, the feet of a king. But never, never, never does a king kneel in front of one of his subjects. Never would a teacher kneel before his students. So J- Jesus' disciples, they're confused. And look at Peter's reaction in verse 6. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what what I'm doing you don't understand, but you will understand afterwards. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Peter is like us, isn't he? Jesus is superior, the Lord, the Master. He would never wash the feet of his lowly disciples. They're the ones who should be washing Jesus' feet. The disciples should wash Jesus' feet and then on down the ladder of hierarchy, the foot washing should go. See, Peter cannot understand the meaning of this gesture because Peter needs Jesus above him. He doesn't need a Jesus that's below him. Jesus gives Peter security. Jesus has authority and power. After all, he's the Messiah. Peter said it. God told Peter. He confessed it. He's the Son of God, the Holy One. But Jesus wants to enter into a new relationship with Peter. Jesus is calling Peter to kneel and love others just as Jesus loves him. He's calling Peter to the life-giving way. The way of littleness and meekness and service. All groups, all societies are built on the model of a pyramid. Right? At the top are the powerful, the rich, the intelligent. They're called to govern and to guide. And at the bottom are the immigrants, the slaves, the servants. The people who are out of work, who have mental illnesses people who have disabilities and are homeless. That's the bottom of the pyramid. And here Jesus is taking the place of a person at the bottom of the pyramid. The last place, the place of a slave. And for Peter, this is impossible. 
You see, he doesn't realize that Jesus came to transform the model of society from a pyramid to a body. A body where each and every member has a place, whatever their ability or their disability, where each one is dependent upon the other. Each is called to fulfill a a mission in the body. In the body, there is no last place. I mean, you get a hangnail. The model of a pyramid, it's bred into us. We are constantly bombarded by this message. Authority has power. Authority is on top. But tonight, We are facing a God on his knees, washing our feet. And this is a fundamentally different way of exercising authority. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. That's who I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now tonight, we're going to do this. We're going to wash one another's feet. And it's a symbol. That's what it is, a symbol. But remember... A symbol can become a source of grace. And that's why we're doing this. We're not doing it tonight merely to symbolize. As we literally wash each other's feet tonight, there will be in this room an unleashing of grace. There will be the presence of Jesus among us, here with us. As we do this, he will pour grace into our lives and strength and love because we are going to make ourselves little before one another and humble ourselves before one another and become the servants of one another. And that is the path of life. It's a good thing that we're embracing this symbol as a church. It's not easy. It's going to have its awkward moments. But it's good. This is what Ken on Sunday so prophetically called us to do tonight. As you wash the feet of your child or your neighbor or your friend, remember you are serving them as Christ. As Christ, you are recognizing their importance and their value in the eyes of the Father. You are giving them the dignity of their place in the heart of the Father in a tangible way. You are getting below them and saying, you were made just a little below the gods. 
And remember, by washing the feet of the disciples, Jesus is pronouncing judgment over the distinction between master and slave, between those in power and the powerless, between superiors and inferior. Now, look, in many cultures, slaves are the one who they're the ones who do the really difficult and strenuous and hard and manual labor. They're forced to work horribly long hours. They build the pyramids. The palaces, they pick the cotton, they dig coal from the mines. They're the ones who's, on whose shoulders industrial societies depend. They work in inhuman conditions for just a pittance of pay. It's the immigrants who do the work that everybody else refuses to do. It's the factory workers in the global south who provide the designer label products for the global north. 2,300 years ago, Aristotle justified this arrangement of society. He said, quote, those with good heads, the thinkers, should govern, while those who are essentially hand-driven should do manual labor. Now, Aristotle insisted that superiors should treat slaves with justice. That the distinction between the thinker and the doer, the intellectual and the laborer, the superior and the inferior, the distinction between those who govern and those who are governed shouldn't move into value. The problem is that Aristotle's justification quickly became the basis for all forms of racism that have ravaged our world and sexism. And do you see how tonight Christ judges That system. Tonight, we are encountering the God who changes all of this. Jesus came to make all things new. And for Jesus, each person, whether they're six months old, running around after the service while we're having bagels, tripping us, or they can't speak English, or they're the elderly, Or they're the deeply sick that is contemplating suicide. Each person in Jesus' eyes is precious. Each one is loved. He didn't wash the disciples' feet. He washed Peter's feet. I mean, in our pushing back against the individualism that, that is a part of the Enlightenment, we've got to remember the individual still matters. Matters in the heart of Christ. Each one is loved by God. Each is called. Each person. Think about this. Every person that exists is called to become the home of God. That gives everyone value. That's the value of every person. Each person has a gift to bring to others. The weak among us, their best gift is what they give us. Not that we get the gift of serving them. It's what they give to us. Each one has a gift to bring. Each should be deeply respected. But unfortunately, churches, we fall into the pyramid model all the time. Churches do this all the time. Those with money and power, get, they, they chair the committees. They're the leaders of the church. 
But Christians, we're continually brought back to this paradox. Leadership is necessary. Leaders have to have power. But how should leaders exercise their power? How should a leader give a clear message about the truth of Jesus' message? How can a leader in the church be a servant leader? The lust for power, our lust for acclaim and honors, all of this undermines the message of the gospel. The desire for power and honor and recognition, this will always lead you to idolatry. That is the path it takes you to. It is a path of death. It leads you to compromise with the value system of the world. We all imagine that if we just had a little more influence, a little more power, a little more authority, then we could set things right. No. That's the way of the world. I struggle with this temptation. (laughs) It's sometimes easier for me to accept the experience of being honored for a book I've written or a sermon I've preached, or a church I'm I'm planning, than it is to just sit down poorly and humbly and share my life with someone who has nothing to offer. At home and here with you, so many times I feel the temptation, the urge to set things right, to control to dominate situations rather than to wait humbly. To find the right way of doing things. All of us in our spheres, we have to figure out how to avoid getting, getting caught up in the power game in order to exercise authority humbly in a spirit of service as Jesus did. We need the humble, loving force of the Holy Spirit To fill up our lives and to shatter our idols. Now tonight, the message of Jesus is clear. We must love each other in this room as Jesus loves us. How do we do that? By staying close to each other. You can't live this out if you're treating church like a fast food restaurant that you bop in and out of. How do we live this out? We live this out by staying close enough to each other that I know what the dirt on Muay Guy's feet is that I need to wash off. We've got to stay close. But look, we've especially got to be close to the lonely that are among us. And through humility and service and making ourselves little, we become friends, or better yet, brothers and sisters. This must be at the heart of the church of the incarnation. Now look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now the Greek word here for bless, it implies two things. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Two ways this blessing word is working itself out. One, being blessed by God. If you do these things, God will bless you. Right? So if Jeremy takes on himself the character of a meek, humble, lowly servant in the way he moves through this world, he will be blessed by God. That's first. But there's another thing going on here. 
It's this idea that an abundance of joy flows out of participating in this activity. That as you do this, you are participating in the life of God. If you choose the last place. Now think about children. Listen to me. Children, when you go to get in the car, do you fight for the best seat? When the pot is passed around the table, do you fight for the best on the plate? Do you get so much food at the buffet or at the potluck that the people behind you don't have? I mean, isn't it amazing, parents, how from the time, I mean, in all kinds of a thousand ways, this plays itself out for us. But children and adults, if we would stop living that way, we would participate in the joy of the Father. If we would make ourselves small before each other, if we will choose meekness, then we will receive a blessing from God. And tonight, as you and I wash one another's feet, this act of Christ-like service, in that moment, we will be close to God. And we will be, if we allow our hearts to engage in this way, we will be participating In the life of God. We become like God. Our hearts overflow with love. You see we wash one another's feet tonight. As a form of grace. Just like in Matthew's gospel. Where we're told that a cup of water. Right to the thirsty. Clothing to the naked. Food to the hungry. Conversation to the lonely. What, What are we told in Matthew's gospel? When we do these things. Christ is there receiving that from us. Christ is there. In the same way tonight, when I wash my son's feet, Christ is in him. And as I serve my son, I am serving Christ. And Christ is in me. And here's the truly humbling part. It is much harder to have your feet washed than it is to wash someone's feet. I mean, the moment you sit in that chair, you'll discover you'd far rather be in Jesus' place doing the washing than in Peter's place. And you're going to feel in you the same thing Peter gave articulation to in him. No, wait, 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 wait. And you'll know in that moment it's really about pride. It's not about humility. Christ is here. Just like he was in that room 2,000 years ago, washing the disciples' feet. Christ is here tonight, washing your feet in the form of a friend or a child. Christ himself kneels before you tonight. Because this is the way that Jesus loves. The way of littleness and meekness, and humility. And when you and I humble ourselves and serve others and humble ourselves to allow ourselves to be served, when we make ourselves small, Christ is present. Look at verse 34. I'll wrap this up. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 
Christians all over the world call this Maundy Thursday, not Monday Thursday. Maundy is from the Latin mandatum, which means mandate, which means command. <coughs> Maundy Thursday is the day that Christ gives this new command. Don't just love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor the way Christ loves your neighbor. That's the essence of tonight. Tonight we're called to follow Christ in the way of smallness and meekness and littleness. And as we do this, as we follow Christ down this path, look what he says in verse 35. By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. People will know that we're his disciples. We must not be seduced by the steroid evangelical culture in America that says we will change our city when we can become big enough to influence our city. That's not the way of Christ. That's a seductive path. We will impact our city through small acts of meekness. As we live out the gospel for the least of these, the immigrants, the mentally handicapped, those who have nothing for us. As we follow Christ down that path, the power of God and his kingdom will be unleashed. As we daily crucify ourselves in service of others, God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we serve each other in our families and in our work and on the streets, that prayer that that Christ gave the church, it will be fulfilled inch by inch, little moment By little moment, humble and little and meek servant by little servant. Let's pray.